Hi everyone, welcome to My Steps to Sobriety, the show in which I, your host, Stefan Neff, bring on guests from around the world from whom we can learn and who at times have had their own struggles with alcohol or who have overcome hurdles and strange things in their life that make them unique and that show us that perseverance and gratitude and all those beautiful things, those beautiful emotions in life, how they can make a difference and lead us into a direction that we all should aspire to go to because at the end of that direction is a you that you can't even fathom yet. You can't even imagine yet how beautiful that you is. And that's what me and my guests are all about. So enjoy. And today's guest, I'm actually quite excited to listen to and to, to exchange ideas with him. I've got on the show Donald Lee. He is a fellow author. And I would like to take the opportunity to read you from one of his books. One revelation on our spiritual journey is that what you seek is already right here with you before you even start your journey. The second is that the world does not change by your journey. You change and thus you see the world differently. Then you are able to see that what you seek is right before you. It always was. You always had it. Because what you seek is within you, not without you. So the spiritual journey is always a journey inward. The outward journey is just to show you yourself as reflected in the faces and places you visit. Profound words. I love them. Donald, tell me more about them. Where did you write them? And what were the circumstances when you wrote them? Well, the, that little passage, Stefan, comes from the end of the introduction uh, to my first book, the, the Book of Modern Day Parables. And in that, I just uh, kind of introduce the structure of the book, what it's about, what, what I'm trying to say. And the book is called The Band Director's Lessons About Life. And I, I've spent the last two decades being a band director. Uh, in schools and also sometimes for community bands here in Alberta and Canada. And, you know, sometimes in schools, when you teach, especially working with kids, some, a situation arises that, that we, we call a teachable moment. And something, you know, happens with the kids and, and you think to yourself, you know, guys, there's something more important happening right here that we can learn from. Uh, it's more important than, you know, learning how to add fractions or learning the alternate F sharp fingering on the clarinet or whatever the lesson of the moment is supposed to be. There's a bigger life lesson right here. Maybe we should just kind of take a minute and, you know, and explore this little lesson that life has presented to us. And so at some point I started writing some of those little experiences down and in, in the form of little parables. So there's a story, each of the 50 parables uh, begins with a story that's set in school 
and their kids, and most of them are band classes, but I've taught other things. I've taught math, and I've taught almost everything, actually. So sometimes there's other, other classes. Sometimes it's a hallway encounter, just things that come up in school. So there's a story section, and then there's a reflection section that draws a spiritual teaching or spiritual lesson out of the events of the story. And so there's a little lesson that, I mean, there's a parable on love and a parable on gratitude, which you mentioned just when we were talking here before. And, and you have a little uh, YouTube, actually more than one little YouTube uh, vignette on gratitude. It's so important. And, you know, a lesson on, you know, perseverance and et cetera, 50 different lessons on 50 uh, different, uh, different aspects of life. And yeah, I think it's a great book. It very much sounds like it. And I think you've just got uh, another uh, buyer for your book. I'm now all intrigued. I want to, to learn a little bit more uh, about that. And I love the, the way that you uh, re referenced teachable moments. There are so many moments out there that can either be annoying or upsetting or triggering all kind of of negative emotions in us whilst when you look at them more neutrally and take your own emotions out of it suddenly you realize wow this is actually a teachable moment this might be exactly the moment that you can show compassion and understanding and empathy with the other person and make them see the world in a maybe different way and suddenly the two of you are far more enriched and what could have become a road rage or an incident at school or 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 might suddenly turn out to be a really beautiful moment in the day yeah i love that yeah. you know you said you said uh, stefan take your emotion out of it and i just about jumped in and said no leave your emotion into it because the lesson's for you Right? It's always a lesson for you. In fact, yeah, I, I loved your little introduction. Thank you so much for that, uh, Stefan. And it made me think, you know, some of the comments you made just in the introduction that, um, that yeah, we, we want to reflect on those moments of our life. In fact, right during this time when we're all kind of locked inside, I've, I've begun another a major new work. I'm, I'm working on a memoir. And so I've been going back over my life and, and reliving and, and reanalyzing in a sense, you know, those moments that you remember, you know, like 99% of our life we've all forgotten. And sometimes you'll have people say to you, so, oh, remember that time when, like, no, I have no memory of this whatsoever. I think you're making it up. But then there's other little silly in instances, like there's things, there's little images that stick in my mind from when I was three years old or eight years old or 10 years old, or, you know, the things I did as a teenager. And, you, you know, you said, what's the word you used? Not, not stupid, crazy was the word you used. Like the crazy things you do. Yeah, that's those crazy things that, that really have the lessons for us. In fact, just in the last few days, I, I know we're, <laughs> we're gonna talk about alcohol, but anyway, just in the last few days, some of the writing I, I've been doing on my memoir has been looking at um, at deaths, you know, people who have died sort of in my presence or deaths that I've been involved in. And I think most of us, by the time we get to be, well, my age, you're obviously younger than me, Stefan, but, um, you know, by the, by the time you get to be my age, you know, like you've had some 
you've had some experience with death, uh, you know, accidents, heart attacks, what, you know, whatever. And I mean, as a, as a medical doctor, you've probably had a lot more incidents, you know, your life has touched death so much more than mine has. But so I've started kind of going over those and sort of reliving them and writing them down. And I think one of the beautiful things about that is that it has forced me to look at events in my life with a more with with more mature eyes now that I'm older and I think I'm able to draw out more from those experiences that I things I missed at the time or shortly after the time and and I look at them again and think you know what I didn't I didn't realize it at that time but but that affected my life after that in such a way there was a lesson in that that I couldn't have put words on at the time but it it was it, it was a lesson that somehow impacted me in a way that that my life was a little bit different afterwards. You know, and, and most of our life, of course, is routine and, and probably not noteworthy, but there are those events in our lives that, that kind of propel us along our, our journey in life. And, you know, I, I look at everything from a spiritual perspective and the life is, is a spiritual journey. It's fundamentally a spiritual journey. And we have our mental journey, our emotional journey, our relationship journeys, our physical journey, right? All those kind of things. But at its core, life is life is spirit, and it's a spiritual experience and a spiritual journey. So, it's it's interesting. But you want to get on to alcohol? No, this, yeah, I'm 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 intrigued about your your grasp of life and the way you are you are thinking, uh, because that is your core, and without knowing your core, one will never understand your link with alcohol, your association, what the alcohol gave to your life in a positive sense and what it took from your life yeah. in a negative sense. And it is intriguing when I was listening to you talking about your memoir, when I wrote my book, My Steps to Sobriety, uh, I started end of last year and it became a huge emotional and spiritual journey for me because I went through a lot of things that led me to drink. I, I relived my rehab. I relived every lesson that I learned that I then put on paper. So it, it was at times quite traumatic. It was at times very beautiful. But often the, the seven years or thereabouts now since that journey began for me, now I look at things in a very different light. I still fought in a similar process as you did when you started writing your memoir. I went back to when I was a younger man, when I was not such a nice guy, when I made a lot of mistakes as I would define them today. And they were still painful. There was still the initial temptation to be full of shame, full of guilt, full of all the negative emotions. And now that I reflect on the last six months of writing, I have to say that I am now able to accept this flood of shame and guilt as one of these deep intrinsic emotions that you say 
okay, thank you very much for saying hello to me. But right now, actually, this was all 30 years ago. I don't need to suffer right now. I don't need to feel the same intensity of negative emotion. Uh, nice try, but thanks. No, uh, go to the way, go, go to the side. So I think it is actually when you look back into your past, which at times is really valuable to do, then do so by defining it as the past. It was what it was. Yes, you made mistakes, and that's where you then do plan to make amends in the alcohol terms, or actually literally go out, do the amends. That's where that comes in, in your recovery process. But at the same token, it was what it was. Right now, live in the moment, and if you go back to the past, then use it as a lesson, and not as a, as a, as a prison sentence. That's not what the past should be. And and also Stefan to to uh, develop the the wisdom to look at our own past with compassion. The way we would look at someone else's past with compassion. If if you were if you could be two people right and you came to yourself as a therapist right the therapist self would say just what you're saying okay good that's in the past that's not you anymore you've learned from that. Right, life presented you with a lesson, and you know, you're a bit of a slow learner, but whatever, you know. Okay, you you you've learned it now. Congratulations, you like you 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 graduate now. Okay, so but now now you're now you're a different self, right? So live. That's the the the, the spiritual lesson about always living in the present because we can't live anywhere else. We can't live in the future. We can't live in the past. And and if if our mind is trying to dwell either in the future or the past, we're missing the present. And that, that's where life is, right? So again, look, look on your past with compassion. You think, oh, shit, was I a jerk? Exactly. You know, there's those, we'll call them jerky moments, but you know, we, we could have more descriptive brutal and rude, you know, adjectives to describe it. Yeah, it, you know what? And I'm thinking, I don't know, do I, do I put that in my book? Uh, that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, that. I, I never told anybody about that. I guess, what if, you know, I'm not proud of that. The instant after it happened, I wasn't proud of that. And I, I've never told anybody, do I, do I put that in my book? It's still in my memory. It's still one of those those things that I have to look back on with compassion for my past self and think uh, I was young and stupid and I shot off my mouth and it was really hurtful. And I learned that I, I'm not gonna do that again. I've done many other stupid things since then, but I haven't done that one again. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, you so speak out of my heart. Uh, as when I had written the first draft of my book, I sent it to the, the, my mentor, to the boss of the former rehab uh, where I was. And he read through it and I had been brutally honest, brutally honest. Because in, in the 12 steps, I think there is very much a moment when you stop dressing things up 
with whatever kind of niceties you are just coming out there. And that's what I did. And uh, I asked him, hey, look, you know, I mean, yes, I want to be brutally honest with my readers. And because after all, these are the, the lessons that come out of that episode that whatever I wrote. And he quite rightly mentioned to me that people are not interested in the, the minutiae of the blood and gore. They don't want to know how the mud in the gutter tasted like. Uh, there might be a moment where you can bring that in, but in, in general terms, this is not about how low can you sink, but how can you get out of a position where you think there is no way out? How can you crawl back and strive to become a human being that is a beacon of light in darkness that others yes. can follow? That yes. is what this book was all about. And it was beautiful how he put it in words. And I then smartly went back over it, took some of the more hardcore things that I had done out of the book. Um, so sorry, viewers, readers, uh, you, you, missed, you missed the X-rated version. Um, so this one is the, the more, uh, it's still very brutal, but yeah. at least not, uh, this isn't about a journey of, of getting better and becoming a, a man or a, a person, non-gender specific, who you want to be. Yeah. So now it's beautiful what you say there. Yeah. Because so you, you want, and, and, and both of us, you know, we're, we're writing not simply um, as a cathartic exercise for ourselves, but to be a, a light, an inspiration to others. And so you, you can't stay too long in the gutter. Um, that, <laughs> that, that, that gets depressing. Regardless of how long, like you actually may have stayed in the gutter, <laughs> you, you don't want to keep your readers in there that long. For it to be inspirational, you, you have to, you're going to take them down to the gutter, but then we have to pull people up with us. That's, well, that's right. That's so true. That's so yeah. true. So, okay. Uh, if we go a little bit back in time, just a few oh, years when you were at school, and I wonder, and not a school as teacher, but you actually on the receiving end. Yeah. Um, how was life then for you? How was your youth? How did it all well, start? I, I, yeah, I, I had a wonderful youth. And you know, I was reflecting, and I, I, as I mentioned before we started, I recently listened to your episode with Stuart, uh, Stuart Watson. And, you know, his journey made me reflect, made, made it a little bit more clearly on my journey. And uh, Stuart told about his first experience, uh, you know, with alcohol, drinking, it was such a, uh, like a euphoric experience. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. What, what were some of my, my first ones like? And you know what, as a teenager, really, most of my first experiences with alcohol were, were kind of negative, actually. And like, you know, when, when young people first taste beer or wine or hard liquor, it tastes terrible. It's bloody, it's bloody fire water. <laughs> like why, why would people do this to themselves? You know, my first experience really, and I, I, we'll, we'll take the time for this little story, but 
in the little town that I grew up in. It's called Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. And my dad was very instrumental in starting a little ski hill and ski club on the banks, the river bank of the North Saskatchewan River. And when we were trying to get things set up, and I was probably, I was maybe, I don't know, 13 years old, plus or minus a year, something like that. And one of our neighbors uh, donated his boathouse from his cottage if, if the ski club wanted to use it. And oh, great, because the ski club actually did need some buildings. We, we wanted the, we need the little shed to, you know, keep equipment in and hoses for snow making, all that kind of stuff. So, so dad uh, kind of arm twisted one of the local um, trucking firms to, to move this. And so uh, I went out with dad to the, to the little cottage while they, you know, hoisted up the boathouse and put it on this flatbed trailer and hauled it back in and set it down in the little spot, the ski hill where we wanted it to be. And these, the truckers had donated their time too. And so when we were done and, you know, standing around talking, dad pulled out a bottle of Crown Royal. Now, I don't know if in, in <clears throat> way down in New Zealand, you're familiar with Crown Royal, but it's, it's the top Canadian whiskey. Uh-huh. And in, in Canada, whiskey is made from rye. It's different from the whiskey you get in the United States. The, the crap down in the States is really, is really bourbon. Um, but Canadian whiskey is good stuff. Anyway, not, not that I like it very much. So, so this, this is a bottle of Crown Royal Canadian rye whiskey. And uh, so dad, you know, handed him the bottle and these, these two guys said, oh, the good stuff, you know? So I mean, cracked open and he took a slug and passed the bottle to his, his buddy and his buddy took a slug and he passed it to me. And I, you know, <laughs> I looked at my dad and dad kind of shrugged his shoulders. And so I just like the big guys, hey, I took a slug man, my throat exploded and fire came out and I coughed and choked and spit. And, and these guys, of course, they killed themselves laughing. <laughs> and I thought, what, you guys are nuts. Like, you do this? You know, so that was my very first experience. That's why I say like, a lot of times our first experience is ne- it's kind of negative. Like a couple of years before that, I tried my first cigarette and my whole lungs burnt. And I'm like, why do people do this? God, this is terrible. And I, I never smoked after that. But uh, the alcohol did come back. But the other, I had other first experiences, you know, when you're young and you're stupid, you don't know what you're doing. You just want to be cool and fit in. And I remember going to a, a New Year's Eve party when I was maybe 15 years old or something like that and, and uh, drank too much and, and ended up you know, puking in the toilet in these people's houses. And, and the, <laughs> it's one of those, I, I don't know, should I tell this? Right, anyways, one of those images, Stefan, that, that sticks in, those stupid things that stick in my mind is that they had, um, they used those little, in the toilet tank, those little, those little cartridge things that turned the water blue. You know, do you have those still? I hardly anybody uses them anymore, but sometimes you still see, you know what? Oh, there was some ad on the TV at the time. It turns the water in the in the bowl blue. So I was puking in here, and it was a white toilet bowl with the blue water swirling around, and me corking in. Like that image is stuck in my memory forever. So I guess some of our first experiences are actually pretty negative, but you know, for the sake of being cool, we force our way through them, don't we? 
<laughs> and so and that is, of course you, you you're referring it quite wisely there because uh both your generation and my half a generation later uh is exactly the same experience you were as a man you were defined by how you hold your liquor uh you were defined about being cool and having a glass of something in your hand and that was that was norm that was you would be a, a strange guy if you wouldn't drink so that was at least the story in germany where i grew up uh no doubt it was very similar in in your uh backyard yeah certainly i mean in in the circles that i grew up in it was strange uh, not not to drink and mm. and but of course there were people who did not drink um for any number of reasons but you know at some point during high school then you got used to it and it became cool and uh then i started drinking more regularly in in, in high school in fact you know the teachers would never do this nowadays but uh this would have been mid 70s uh there was there was two kind of little hotels in our town both in the little downtown area and that, that had bars those were the only two places to drink so it was a very common kind of grade 10 11 um, you know, we, there'd be a handful of us that would go to the, to the bar on Friday after school and, and drink. And there's a couple of teachers who are all, who were, who were typically there on Friday afternoon drinking with the students. Well, you, you get fired for that nowadays. But anyway, in those days, it, we, we kind of got away with it. In fact, you know, I, I, I've said from time to time over the years that, that by the time I turned 18, it was legal to drink anymore. I don't know, somehow the fun had gone out of it. <laughs> and, then, and, and then a year later when and i came back from university went to the bar again and in order to draft beer um the price had gone up to 35 cents for a glass of draft beer i said 35 cents you're crazy i'm not paying 35 cents i quit drinking because they put the you know from 25 cents up to 35 cents i'm not i'm not paying that no way i'm gonna quit drinking so <laughs> I think that was my first time that I'm going to quit drinking. It didn't last long. I, I accommodated to 35 cents. And <laughs> yeah, funny how that happens, isn't it? So far, so far we had a journey with you where you initially hated it. And same with me, I had the first taste of alcohol. Um, and then somehow social norm or our own expectations, our own wish to fit in, whatever drives you, you suddenly get used to it. And actually, when was a moment that you can define where you say, wow, this is really good stuff? Can you remember that? Um, yeah, probably still would have been in high school um, because my, my parents were pretty regular drinkers. Mm. And um, uh, drinking most things, really. You know, as as an adult, I've I haven't drank very much besides wine, uh, beer occasionally on hot summer days, uh, hard liquor almost never. Uh, after I was about twenty five or so, I just I just never really liked the taste of, you know, whiskey, rye, scotch, vodka, all that kind of stuff. And then you mix it with pop, which I didn't mm. really want anyway. But but so I I've been a wine drinker, and. So, I mean, as a, as a high school kid, I kind of started learning about wines and different wines and 
at home, right? Being able to tell, you know, better wines from worse wines and stuff like that. And once in a while, my parents would, would splurge when I was growing up, kind of the, the best wine that they would once in a while get was a Chateau Neuf de Pap. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's, it's yes, own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's probably been, um, 40 years since I've had a bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pap. Is it, no, I, I can't afford that, that level of wine. Right. So, in fact, yeah, we'll get to it. But but that's why I made my own wine for for 30 years or so is because, you know, I, I, I started making my own wine to save money. But then what happened is I started drinking so much wine that at one point I, I quit making wine to save money. <laughs> where was the warmest place in your house? Where did you where did you let it ferment? Oh, well, I mean, we have, I don't know, but maybe you don't need it in New Zealand, but we have central heating here in Canada. <laughs> you right. need it almost all year long. So, uh, yeah, we, like I, I, I made it in the basement. We had it in the laundry room, essentially. Uh, no, we had no. a little sink in the laundry room stuff that worked out pretty well most of the time. Oh, I did the same a while ago uh, when we lived in Auckland and the warmest room in the house was our bathroom. So there the keg stood or the, the big drum stood and yeah. fermenting the wine. And may I say, it was actually a very nice Chardonnay I, I made there. But it was one of these insidious times because you would sit in front of the telly with a glass of wine. Then you would take your glass when it is empty and go to the toilet, have a pee, fill up as you <laughs> literally pee, and then come back with a full glass in. And because you were in a good mood and everything went just smooth, you had no idea that you had seven, eight glasses of wine yeah. until it was too late. And it was such a bizarre thing to look back at. <laughs> but I must say that the Chardonnay was actually quite nice. I've drunk far, far worse than the one that I've made. So, but yeah, it was, it was a very false friend when it came to the, to the quantity that me and my wife drank at the time. Yeah. Goodness. Because it's so easy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Oh, goodness. So, and the, I liked the way you put it, uh, when I asked you to, to make a short soundbite out of it about your relation and alcohol. You described it as insidious, and I guess that is the uh, the most fitting description when it comes to alcohol that there ever could be, yeah. because it is such a powerful drug, and and the the key thing of of the disease of alcoholism is that the drug makes you convinced that you have no problem with alcohol. So yeah. uh, talk about insidious. What yeah. did you mean when you used the word insidious? How does that fit to your life and to your journey? Yeah, so Stefan, exactly how you described it. Because it starts out as a friend. And I like that that old little saying that Patrick, uh, Patrick? Stuart, Stuart Watson um, brought up, you know, that, um, that first, let's see, uh, first the, the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man and it you you ex just expressed it in three stages but it's not like there's stages it's just all it's just a little little slide 
<laughs> like you're like you're you're skating on a lake, but there's a little bit of a slope to the lake, and you you don't notice it, but you just keep going down, 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 and and you never you don't even notice you're moving from one moment to the next, from one day to the next. One when, when like you don't even notice until suddenly it's different, right? You start out, and and I was I was because uh, in your in your uh, interview with uh, Stuart, you also talked about how it changed, how, and I, I've noticed this myself, and I'm assuming that it's a normal response of our body to whatever, this toxin, like we build up a resistance to this, to this toxin over time, um, and so that the, the biochemical response of our body gradually changes over time, right? So what starts out is euphoria. The, 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 gradually, the euphoria fades and the depression deepens. And we know alcohol is a depressant, technically, right? That's how we class it, as a depressant. Um, and and I, I'm big on the, this, the, we are, the we are tripartite or triune creatures, right? We are body mind and spirit and, and I always express it the other way around because we're first of all spirit spirit mind and body is really the order of importance and anything that affects us as a human affects all of us we, we can't separate those we can't take our mind out of our head and set it on the, as we sometimes joke about you know that there's so and so he's taking his mind out of his head and set it on the desk you know and when you have a discussion with him right <laughs> Um, so we can't literally do that. We can't literally separate any of our parts. So we're affected by all of it. So it's physically a depressant, right? Slows down our, our reaction time, et cetera. Slows down our bodily functions, but it also slows down our mental processes. And here's another little aside, you know, in, in my beer drinking years in high school, my parents said, you know, what would you like for a graduation gift? Uh, and um, oh no, they had decided they got me this this uh, pewter uh, beer stein for a graduation gift. And in in our grade twelve English in our, the poetry section, we had had studied this one uh, po poem by the romantic poet by the name of A. E. Huseman. And there was a, a little a stanza in there that I just love. He's describing going to uh, somebody, uh, going to the next town, the neighboring village in England, uh, to, the, to the county fair or something, right? And, and uh, drinking beer and then staggering home, right? And it kind of starts off, I'm not sure if I'll get it completely right, uh, and, and, and carried halfway home or near, pints, he went to, to Ludlow, Ludlow town, uh, to the fair there, right? And carried halfway home or near pints and quarts of Ludlow beer, which the teacher had to explain to us. I mean, he, he woofed his cookies or he barfed halfway home. That's why I only carried him halfway home. But, but then it goes on and says, it says, look into the pewter pot to see the world as the world is not. Mm. And, and isn't that right? You know, like when you get a couple of drunk people talking and they think they're so brilliant and lucid, but anyone who's sober and listening to them thinks you're idiots. 
So, right? so, right? So it depresses our minds, right? Depresses the functioning of our minds, depresses our body. But what nobody ever realizes is, is that it depresses our spirit. It depresses our spirit. It, dis it, de it depresses our connection with our spiritual nature, our spiritual selves, that what I call our, our that divine within. And that, that really is a downward spiral. Physically, our health goes down. Mentally, our functioning goes down. Emotionally, our functioning goes down. And spiritually, our functioning goes down. And, and we start out, um, like, like I started, one of the things I kind of wrote down, well, how did, it, how did alcohol change for me? When I was young, in my teenage years, in early adulthood, I, I drank when I was happy. Ah, school's out, done for the week. Hey, let's go celebrate, right? It was, we drank because we're happy. Somehow, gradually, over the decades, I got to the point where I didn't drink because I was happy. I drank because I was unhappy. But it didn't make me happy to drink. Mm. And you know this too. It doesn't make you happy. It actually makes you more unhappy. Right? So, and, and that slide is slow. And you don't notice it. Until you get to that point that you got to and I got to, not exactly the same point, but where, wherever you come to in, in your life, when you realize this, well, like, where, where am I? That, like, this, this, this isn't how it started. Well, things were very different when it started. How the hell did I get here? <laughs> Damn it, yeah. Right? That's so, so that's, that's what I mean when I say it's insidious, mm. it, it takes you over without you knowing about it. And for a lot of people, by the time you know about it, it's too late. You, there's nothing you can do about it. And so many people die with their alcoholism. Mm. It's, it's a tragedy. That's why it's insidious. And you're so right. You're so right. And that's where the, where the step one comes in, that you actually have to realize yeah. that you are at a point now where enough is enough. Uh, you, you, whatever you've tried has not worked and you are powerless over your alcohol. And that's, yeah. I think, that's a very beautiful, strong position to be in because you have moved yourself so much out of your comfort zone that you're now even you in your alcoholic haze that you're realizing shit i mean enough is enough and whatever that whatever brought you to that moment is is a godsend if you believe in god or whatever karma whatever spirits out there are looking after you something has delivered you this message. Yeah. Come on, man. Come on, girl. Is that really where you want to be? And that is a very, very beautiful thing. Yeah. But then alcohol is sneaky in other ways because you have been in your journey, Donald, you were on a few times there where you said, actually, alcohol, thank you, alcohol. No, I don't want you. Yeah. And... It's quite interesting. So obviously there were different, different, different men in you, different personalities, different, different. I mean, 
the man you were when you were 20 is very different to the man that when you were 35, etc. We all develop, etc. But uh, how does it come that one of you is deciding now enough is enough look what this alcohol does to me uh, i don't want that thank you very much i stopped drinking fast forward five years oh this is good shit um, <laughs> <laughs> so, hang on how does that work <laughs> yeah well this you know in in um in i i think my journey which which i might describe as I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to define alcoholism or define like when is someone an alcoholic? When does a drinking problem become alcoholism? When does regular drinking become a drink? It, it's like those things like the, it's not as if there's exact stages that you can say, oh, well, you passed through this door. Now you're in this room. There's, there's not different rooms. It's, it's, all, a, it's all a blur. So I, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. But there have been times in my life where I drank way too much, and, and recently, right? I, I've, you know, in the last couple of years, I've said I'm drinking way too much, and I got, I got to change this. So the, I think one of the first, I think the first time I quit was when they raised the price from 25 cents to 35 cents a glass for draft beer, but that that didn't last long. That wasn't that much of a commitment. Um, but then after, I think I was probably about 21 or so. And I, I'd been doing a lot of drinking at university. And thinking back on it, I thought, I was incredibly broke that year. How could I afford to drink so much? I don't know how that happened because I always struggled to pay rent. Like I, I lived on rice and potatoes most of the year because I couldn't afford to buy food. I had a part-time job while I was going to university to try to like pay stuff. Um, so I don't know how I drank so much that year. But, but after that year, I realized it wasn't my health both physical and mental, that it was a concern to me. The two things that that struck me after that, that, you know what, I'm spending a lot of money and I'm spending a lot of time. And I don't like that. And I'm going to stop. And so 21 or so, somewhere around that, 20, 21, I said, I made a commitment to myself, I'm not going to drink a drop for a year. And there were a few times, there were, you know, there were times in that year where I thought, ah, oh, man, I said, no. I made a commitment and it wasn't that hard, right? Be because really in, is everyone who's kind of moved away from alcohol completely knows that you change your activities and it's a bit sad, but you change your friends too, right? Um, but you, you change your activities is the main thing. Uh, instead of going to the bar, you go for a run or you go, you, 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 you do other things. You read a book or however it goes, right? You see, you do different activities. But that was the thing for me. Like, I didn't think that I had a drinking problem, but I said, this is taking up too much money and too much time. And it, I, I don't, life's too short as it is. Even as a young man, I realized that like, man, I tried to pack life into every minute I had. So yeah, uh, forget that. And yeah. then I came back to it. And I think there was one other time kind of in my early adulthood where I just said, nah, I would just quit this. And I think it was probably the same thing, time and money kind of a situation. Money was always tight and uh, we, we don't have to spend money on this. But, um, but then, you know, going a few years ago, and I, I kind of came to the realization that what a 
was, you know, doing a similar thing that you were doing. You know, we, it's not so nice to have a bottle of wine with dinner. Uh, so yeah, open a bottle of wine and, and uh, have a glass. And, and somehow the glass of wine was empty before the food was all gone. Oh, I just need a little bit more. Now, so I never had a full glass after that. Like I just, oh, I'll have half a glass. But then that half a glass would, um, uh, that'd be gone by the time dinner was gone. And said, oh, oh, we have cake for dessert. Oh, chocolate cake and red wine go so well together. Well, I'll, I'll just have a half a glass with my cake, you know? And then um, maybe, oh, yeah, that feels so good. I go just, you know, sort of relax on the couch and, and just kind of rest for a minute. Oh, but it'd be nice to have it. Well, I'll just have a half a glass of wine with that, you know? <laughs> and then, then later in the evening, uh, you think, ah, oh, heck, there's only half a glass of wine left in the bottle. There's no point putting the cork back, you know? And there in the course of an evening, the whole bottle of wine's gone. And, and, uh, and then, you know, it, it interferes with your sleep. So you don't sleep well. So you wake up the next morning, not well rested and, well, maybe not exactly hungover, but you're not your best self. And then like the day isn't all that great. And, but, ah, the evening comes, oh, hey, let's have a glass of wine with dinner. <laughs> and you open another bottle and hey, just go downstairs. Well, I got like a hundred or 150 bottles in downstairs, right? Cause like you gotta put them age for a while and stuff like that. So they're like, there's always lots of bottles in the baseball. Well, yeah, we can just take another bottle and you know have a glass of wine. And then then the same thing with being like, it. So this was a habit. Now I don't know. Does that does that mean I have a drinking problem? Does that mean I have an alcoholic? We didn't do it every day, but we did it most days. And. You know, then then I gradually morphed it. My my wife kind of quit drinking. Is it's she doesn't drink at all now? It interferes with the medications that she's on and stuff. She didn't drink at all, right? So, like, well, I don't want to make her feel bad. I'll just I'll just pour myself a glass of wine, go down to my office in the basement, work on my computer a little bit, and you know, and then I said, well, uh, it, I'll just I'll just put the bottle here in the the drawer of my desk, and you know, I guess. <laughs> right? You're nodding your head. Like these are all classic alcoholic things, right? So now I'm, now I'm hiding it. Right? <laughs> well, this is but, all logical. When you do it, it makes perfect sense to you. Yeah. Because you know, you don't want to upset your wife. So you better actually yeah. have it done away from her, doesn't it? It, yeah. it, it all is, it sounds really, really good. And, yeah. oh, please, that is, that is, you actually, you nailed it with your question. I'm not sure if I'm an alcoholic. What is an alcoholic? And many recovery journeys nowadays, uh, people go away from the label of an alcoholic. The AA typically uh, started with you saying, I've got a problem. So therefore, when you are in a meeting, you say, hello, guys, I'm Stefan and I'm an alcoholic. And that is your mantra. And they say, hello, Stefan, good to be here, blah, blah. Uh, so it is, that is step one. And therefore, it is within that framework, it is so important that you acknowledge that you have a problem. Because yeah. if you don't have a problem, why the hell are you there? Yeah. So that is where the, the word alcoholic is used in a positive way. However, it is a stigma. It is something that people hate to admit to. And by forcing the word alcoholic onto people, you might actually drive them away. They might be 
absolutely raving alcoholics by any definition, but by, by the sheer fact that you label them as such, is they not me, me, uh, me, I'm an upstanding citizen. I am a, a pillar of the community. Let me just have another sip to wet my whistle uh, and then go drunk home. And, but well, the police knows me because I'm an upstanding citizen. So they will not pull me over to do a, uh, a test that I most definitely would fail kind of a thing. So, you know, that kind of thing. So I think I like both schools of thought. I like to define myself as an alcoholic because it reminds me of the bad old days because I have been definitely drinking far too much and I had the negative consequences from it, from the sleep that you mentioned to, to the malnutrition to so many other things uh, in my social, emotional, spiritual life. Yeah. Also the the point to make is that it does stunt you in your growth. As doctors, when we look at people who have been addicts, let's say they started drinking seriously at the age of 16, and they are now 35, and we look at them, they have got the emotional maturity of a 16-year-old. Yeah. So that is the important bit to realize. and. I must say this probably I started seriously drinking in university, I would say 20, 22 thereabouts that my life really got quite wet. And certainly in the next 20 years, 25 years, there was not much spiritual growth compared with now the last seven years. Mm -hmm. If I compare, the speed in which I transformed into a better person. You talk snail pace with the alcohol around, towards a, a, a Polaris missile shooting up into the air now in the last seven years. Yeah. And it is such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. God, why did I not get onto that fast track to not salvation, that's the, I use religious sure. words and I'm actually sure. religious, but you know, this, 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 this beautiful growth towards a better man, my yeah. goodness, had I, had I, oh, it's, it's nice, it would have, could have, should have, uh, it was what it was. And I'm yeah. on this journey now because I've been a dick for 25 years under alcohol. So we need to, to recognize that this is a driving factor towards us now changing our tack and going hard yeah. uh, for living a life that is so fantastic that, that you wake up and you, you get up, come on, let's, let's do something. Let's, what shall we do today? Uh, and yeah. that is so beautiful, isn't it? Ah. I, I, think, I think the word you're looking for is joy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Right, it's, uh, we, we, so, much, so many people have uh, like negative connotations of the word God, but what the word you're looking for in, in terms of our spiritual growth is joy. It's a rebirth into joy that like every moment that we live in is a joyful moment, it's an opportunity to experience joy. And, and you're depressing that with alcohol. 
So and true. you know, you, you mentioned that like the, the stunting of, of emotional growth, but you know, it, it stunts the brain, the brain function too, stunts your mental, stunts us in every way, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. In fact, just the other day, I was reading Dr. Daniel Amon's uh, blog that he does, because uh, I've subscribed to it. I highly recommend it to all your readers, a leading psychiatrist um, and a leader in also brain imaging in the United States, Dr. Daniel. And it's Amen, just like Amen, A-M-E-N. Just search him up and uh, follow his blogs. But yeah, he's probably the, the, as far as I know, not that I know much about psychiatry, but probably the, the world's leader in brain imaging. And he says, we can see it right away. Even, even moderate but regular drinkers, we can see it in their brain functioning, in their brain scans. And he said just recently, the American Cancer Society finally, finally came out and said, Alcohol causes cancer, basically. Alcohol is a risk factor in cancer, okay? Absolutely. And, and, and it should, you, you shouldn't drink. Like, if you want to avoid cancer, you're better off not to drink. So they put it in the same class as, like, smoking, alcohol, obesity. You want to avoid cancer, avoid those three, because they're, the, they're, they're the, the big three. Very much so. Yep. And there I mean, was, in fact, there was, a, there was another study out of England that I came across just maybe sometime in the last year, I think it was England, that, uh, you know, that essentially said the, the safe or the recommended level of alcohol consumption is zero. Correct. Correct. Now, here in Canada, like Health Canada still says um, for, I think it's for males, not more than two drinks a day and for females not more than one or whatever that, that, yeah. that it's, as long as you keep it less than that you're okay but you know what really no. the scientific and medical evidence says the safe amount is zero it's a very toxic correct. very correct it's a poison <laughs> we know yeah. this I wrote about that this I I've got a whole chapter on on uh, alcohol and cancer in my book and it is, and I've, I've highlighted the, the issue of that there is no safe limit, that there is no safe anything, that yeah. every glass of wine, every glass of beer that you drink will shorten your life. Yeah. This, we have the data nowadays, but that data is very rigorous. These are good studies. We know that is true. But we have also got a trillion dollar industry that is changing our habits, that is making it normal for you to drink the alcohol. Um, I, another chapter in my book I called The Heroin Free Wedding. And uh, it is about a young, young woman who says, Mommy, is it okay that we talk about about my wedding this year and she said yeah let's talk wedding and she said oh look mom um i've i've made a decision if you're okay with that we have a heroin free wedding and mom loses it and says what the hell have you have you started injecting oh my god every year 15 20 000 beautiful souls get wiped out by heroin how can you and the daughter says, oh, I'm so pleased that you agree with me. I'm so, so happy um, that, that, that we agree. No, I have not in started injecting. I'm all good. And oh, I'm so pleased. And the two of them hug each other and are very happy. And, and then the daughter says, now that we have agreed on that, I've also thought we have an alcohol-free wedding. And the mom just 
looks at her and says, we can't do that. Kid, have you lost your marbles? We, we need to have alcohol there. But she, and the daughter says, well, hang on. There are the, all these, these 88,000 beautiful souls that we lose in the United States every year due to alcoholism. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Still, still child. But hang on, hang on. You know, yeah. that's... Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, the social engineering, the, the, the way we have been let around in our thought processes to accept it to be normal to be drunk drinking hangover i mean take the take the films the hangover series uh, for example it is we're glorifying uh, us vomiting into the rubbish bin but crying out loud it is it's crazy it's crazy 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 and we are fighting against that there are some very, very clever people out there who are manipulating our minds and our, our behavior. And it still keeps going. You guys might have, uh, you might have heard uh, about the subliminal, uh, um, subliminal advertisements uh, in the 80s, around about thereabouts. Um, people thought- Yeah, I think, I, think it was, I think it was actually late, late 60s, early 70s. Oh, 60s. Even, even earlier, cool. So where they yeah. uh, put basically yeah. in, in a film every 24 frame, every 30 frame, put in a picture of Coke. So yeah. you could never see it uh, consciously, but subconsciously you wanted to go out and have a Coke. Yeah. Now yeah. that- It was uh, proven to work. In fact, it worked so well that, that, that we made it illegal, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. And what happens today, the same shit happens, just a little bit more refined. If you look at Netflix versus Lightbox versus other online uh, streaming services, uh, you will find, if you carefully analyze it, that alcohol being consumed or being placed, etc., every three minutes, there is someone drinking really? a glass of alcohol. It doesn't really matter what you watch. The, it's more or less the same. And whilst alcohol advertisement is uh, deemed uh, not necessarily illegal, but restricted in many places yeah. around the world. It's quite amazing that, that certain channels that you watch, let's say Netflix, uh, most of the heroes, regardless what you watch, will prefer one drink. Whilst if you watch something else, uh, the heroes will rather go maybe for a whiskey and always sort of more or less the same. And I'll let you viewers and listeners draw your conclusions out of that. Uh, we, are, we are talking about a, a massive, massive mind-changing industry that wants us to drink. And we are fighting against that uh, every single day. And that makes it so hard for, for many of us alcoholics because yeah. we're only human beings for crying out loud. And yeah, that's right. And it, you know, in, in that sense, it, it's just, um, it's, not, it's not just alcohol, it's, it's other uh, habits, whether it's food that's unhealthy for us or you know, ideas or the, the censorship and the, the, the kind of uh, underhanded kind of propaganda that, that we're getting so much. It's, and there's so much um, 
uh, we have we have so much input into our brains now, right? So much information goes into us through screens and all the rest of us. You go back a century, and we must have a thousand times uh, the amount of information images that have bombarded us and in a typical day that people did only a century ago, right? The, a hu human, no species, well, maybe viruses do, but <laughs> humans, mammals don't evolve that quickly, right, to deal with this. So. One of the points I make in, in one of the parables in my book is that, that we are forced in this modern world to be vigilant gatekeepers of what we allow into our consciousness. Beautiful. We can't just be, we can't just be random consumers of what other people want to put into our consciousness. Beautiful. We, we have to be the gatekeepers. Yeah. And, and I, I don't watch movies. I haven't, I'm not, have not watched broadcast television for probably 30 years. I think it was about 1990 that we we put the television away in the I and mean, we had one of those little little black and white ones at the time, right? And we just put the television away in the closet for Lent one year and we said to the kids, yeah, you kind of forced this on them, right? They weren't happy about it, but we said, you know what, we're, we're gonna give up uh, television for Lent this year. <laughs> Suck it up, guys. Anyway, so uh, so we put you know. I liked it so much that, that we never really brought it out. Like they had kids had to ask, oh, can we watch such and such? And then we'd have a discussion about, do we want to bring it out of the closet? Like, you know, and they accuse us of being dinosaurs and stupid. And so they go over and watch TV at their friend's house and stuff like that. But you know what? At least we had like a heroin-free <laughs> house. We had a, we had a, we had a television-free house. So yeah, like I, I've been doing this for, for 30 years. It's, it's not new to me, but yeah, so we don't watch television. I watch very few movies. I don't even like watching movies anymore. Um, I don't like going out because most of the time, most of the restaurants you go in, you're bombarded. They have televisions all around. Again, you try to talk to the person across the table, and I'm constantly going like this, and so are they. And you think, look, I, I, like, I'm not paying this money to watch some TV thing that I don't want to even see. Let's go sit in the park and have a conversation or something. Yeah. So that's yeah, interesting. Oh, that's interesting. See, I, I, I certainly from my travels to Canada to to the states, I realize how much the, the television there is an influence. We are lucky. We it's I can probably here in my town I can I can count five restaurants, maybe ten at a push where there is somewhere a television, and that these are typically restaurants who have got a bit more sports themed. Uh, yeah. background so that there's constant uh, a rugby game being 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 broadcast and yeah. that is their their draw factor come here with your mates have a beer watch the rugby and that's yeah. that's that's the way it is fair enough but normal restaurants don't have that so we are blessed yeah. so if we go out for a food we go out actually to celebrate each other and to communicate and yeah. to share time so yeah. that is a beautiful, beautiful thing here in New Zealand that hasn't yet morphed into the not so nice thing that you described. Yeah, good. Well, I hope it's still that way by the time I can actually afford to come and visit you in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, it is hopefully, hopefully this COVID uh, will maybe soon change its uh, gen uh, genetic makeup and become less often of a threat. There is this possibility, or we find a weapon against it. And again, one way or the other, we, for the time being, we all need to look after each other and after ourselves. There is no doubt about that. And I don't think travel at the moment is so advisable. 
and neither is it to go out there and rub shoulders with with people who want to demonstrate in in the united states please guys look after uh, after yourselves uh, is canada uh, is is there are there a lot of demonstrations going on at the moment no it's it's actually ludicrous in canada um yeah, well, that, that's that's a topic for a whole nother episode. You know, I I I have I have um, you know known people from New Zealand. I've never traveled to New Zealand, so I, I don't have a good sense. But I I get the sense from the people, the New Zealanders that I've known, that it's probably quite a bit like Canada. That there really isn't much racism. Uh, Canada, I mean, I've lived and worked in other places in the world, and there's there's almost no racism in Canada. Be, beyond that, like it's it's one of those things like like alcoholism. <laughs> like, like it's it's in us as human beings. We will never eradicate that. In fact, one of my recent blog posts last week put that this this is this is a ubiquitous human failing to see differences in each other, whether that's our skin color or the fact that you've got hair on the top of your, you don't have hair on top of your head and I do, and all oh, those bald guys scare me. Oh, well, you know, whatever. We, we, we always look at people and we make judgments and we find these differences and we all, whether it's uh, skin color, religion, like they will always be that. So it is something that every single one of us must constantly uh, be on guard against within ourselves. Beautiful, beautiful. But, it's, but apart from that, like it's not systemic. Like we can, we've got fact, we've got to just um, uh, in the Conservative Party of Canada, we've got a leadership campaign coming up. I'm voting for the black woman. Because you like, probably hey, look. Here I'm, an old, here I'm an old white guy, an old white conservative guy, right? Like uh, I don't care about skin color. I don't care about male or female. Yeah. She's. She's by far the most educated. She's got about four degrees, a PhD in international law, master's in environmental science. Uh, she's the most reasonable sounding, like down to earth, normal person. She wasn't born with a silver spoon in her mouth, but you know, hey, that, that's what I'm looking for. I don't care about skin color. Perfect. And I don't care about, about male femaleness or whatever the nonsense. I, who, who's gonna be the best leader? You don't know until they have a chance to be, to be the leader, but. To me, to my mind, I'm more impressed with her than any of the others. So, like, if this was a systemically racist country, she wouldn't be on the ballot. Because, I mean, other people, other people were not allowed to be on that ballot. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty ticked off about the Conservative Party of Canada sort of uh, kicking people out of the race for, you know, based on their own decision. Well, let the members decide. That's what democracy is all about. Yes, sir. So you want some wingnut? You, you want to, oh, we don't want wing nuts to run. Who decides who's the wing nut? <laughs> right? Very, well, very let true. them run. Very true. Let the people vote. That's what democracy is all about. So, I mean, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, so, no, even no, no. our own party has got their prejudice and biases, but it's not against blacks and it's not against women. Hmm. No, I, I agree with you, with your sentiment very much so. Um, but yeah, again, uh, we need to be careful what we are saying because we are two white guys. I mean, I'm I'm a German skinhead by definition. You know, come on. So <laughs> I need to be to be very careful what I say. And Skid, I hadn't put that together. Silly <laughs> me. <laughs> so I think the reality for me is uh, you would be 
hard, uh, it would be very hard for you to find someone who is more against extremism, who is more against racism than me. Yeah. Yet, uh, at the same token, there will be some voices out there, however much we live a life fighting against racism, that they will still call us racist because it fits into yeah. their ideology. Uh, it yeah. fits uh, into their, uh, their, their ideal culprit, which happens to be right now, white, our age yeah. group, uh, yeah. and you know, uh, yeah. a bit more conservative. Uh, and mm, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 you, we talked a minute ago about the label of, of an alcoholic, right? People, mm. alcoholic people re reject that label. Mm. And, and so the label of racist is thrown around these days just as a, as a political slur, it has no meaning anymore. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you have an honest conversation about racism when, like, like when you can't even use the words honestly? It, 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 like the, the misuse of language undermines our ability to even communicate. That's a very good point because uh, drawing it back to the alcohol, that is what we see constantly there. And uh, the same with drugs, drug addiction, etc. So now it is, you're quite right. And I think that's, that's where the living amends come in. And that's where sort of some parts of the recovery process where you actually go out there and live a life that you can be proud of that is such a beautiful thing you were maybe not such a nice uh, person in the past and maybe there were some racist thoughts and maybe racist actions that maybe were normal at the time the when you muttered them or when you did them mm -hmm. but now it's a different life and and you can you can very much make a conscious choice to act very differently Yes. You might very much go out there and be not colorblind, but just say, yes, these are all quite nice colors, but what's actually behind it? I love the way you described it with your politician, because that's really what matters. It is it's the gender or, or whatever, how they dress up, it does not matter whatsoever. At least not for me, it is. Uh, it is a beautiful world out there if we can look at the true color of a person deep inside. Yeah. Now let's also say, be quite clear here. One in 10 people has got a personality disorder. One in 100 people is a psychopath or a sociopath. There are a lot of pieces of shit out there that walk on two feet in a human form. These people will not go away. And these people come in all colors in all genders in all sexual directions it yeah. is it is what it is there's some nasty pieces of works out there so if i call you out don't just hide behind the race card okay yeah. if it happens to be you're a maori but you're a nasty piece of work well you're not <laughs> and it's the same if you're chinese and it's the same if you're white it's the same yeah. if you're a girl or a boy i don't give a toodle um, if you're a nasty piece of work, that's it. Sorry, my behavior will change to you, but it has nothing to do with whatever that you may be a, uh, a LBQT uh, uh, identifying person. I don't give a toss. You're a piece of shit. End of the story. 
Um, so I think that's quite important. Labels can be helpful, and sometimes they can be absolute uh, distracting from what is really important. And I think for us, I think we too are preaching to the to the choir here, because we too are trying to live our life in 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 a beautiful way and try to make the life of others better by sharing our stories yeah. and sharing our our triumphs, sharing our dark times and the journey that we took to get away from the dark times. And I think that's what we need to focus on. I think let's let's do the living amends. Let's let's live as those beautiful beings that we want to be. Let's vision them. Let's see who we want to be deep inside there and do everything possible to actually move to that, to that vision, to make that vision become true, to, for you to be waking up and looking in the bathroom mirror and think, wow, did you do that yesterday? Wow. Okay. That's beautiful. That's the, the kind of message I want to, to throw out there make this world better uh, in your own little sphere, in your own little uh, surrounding, because that's, that's what you can ident uh, what you can influence. That's, that's what, what you can do something about. Yes, you can get upset about the world picture, etc. cetera. Uh, does it really help you? Uh, why not make a difference where you can do it and let that snowball? And that, and that starts with us, right? The thing that we have, that we really only have control over is ourselves. And it, it was beautiful the way, the way you said that a moment ago, that, that in, in the present moment, we have an opportunity to choose differently this time, regardless of how, what we chose in the past. And then that's the beauty of, of, of trying to live always in this present moment. In this present moment, I, I can choose. I don't have to choose the same thing I chose in the past. I can choose differently now. And uh, it, it's, if, if we were to kind of come full circle and go back to my, my book of parables, that's it's exactly the whole focus of the book. That's why there's there's four sections to the book, and that's why it's it's a cycle. It's like preparing my bands for performance, right? There's there's a there's the four parts of preparation, uh, where essentially you're setting goals, deciding who who in the spiritual sense, who do you want to be? If you don't want to be a slave to alcohol anymore, you, you can make that change. You first of all have to decide that. You have to set that as a goal. Okay, that's, that's what we're going to – so that's part of the preparation process. And, and then practice is the second one. Well, we're going to have to change some of the way, ways we practice, right? Then there's performance in, in, in our lives. Essentially, every moment is a performance opportunity. And, and we can choose this moment. Oh, kid, I shouldn't have said that last moment, but I'm not going to say it this moment. I'm going to say something different at this moment, right? So every moment, and then every moment is also the fourth stage where we reflect and redirect, right? We can reflect on what we did even a moment ago and think, why did I say that? Or why did I do that? Or, you know, whatever. Like, okay, uh, let's, let's redirect. And then, and then we go back to the beginning and prepare. And so it's a cycle. That's why the subtitle is, 50 parables on life's performance cycle is that we're constantly striving to be something more than we are right now. And as individuals, we get to choose what is that something more that we want to strive to be or become. 
beautiful, beautiful. And, 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 and your listeners can get a little free sample. That's wonderful, Donald. Absolutely. So uh, Donald has earlier on offered me that uh, he, he is giving a freebie away uh, as a, uh, a gift to you watching uh, today. So if you go down below in the, in the description, there will be a link to uh, Donald's uh, abbreviated version of his book. So some short lessons. And, and if you like what you read, then go out there and treat yourself to the full journey. And no doubt that will be uh, something I will do. No doubt about that. Now, Donald, I'm, I mean, this was a fantastic interview. I really appreciated your honesty, your insights, your humility, your integrity. And it is it is a humbling experience for me to sit here and we were just before the show we were talking about about gratitude and i had this this cheesy smile coming on my on my face before the show when i when i was relating to something that made me feel happy and grateful and i've got the same stupid smile creeping up on me now because the the last hour or however long we actually spoke uh, it's was been an hour and a half yeah was beautiful <laughs> and i wouldn't have missed a second of it so thank you so much for sharing your time sharing your passion, sharing your insights. I think your, your way of crystallizing and, and, and putting it all down in succinct words uh, is very commendable. And I, I have enjoyed myself tremendously and I hope that applies for every listener and viewer out there. Thank, thank you so much, Stefan. It's, it's my honor. Uh, to be on your show, to be able to share some some words from my heart and from my mind and from my experience, and and I sincerely hope that they're meaningful and useful, helpful to whoever happens to listen and stumble across our, our interview. So, uh, all, all of us, everyone, God, God bless you. And the same to you. Thank you so much, Donald. Look after yourself. Thank you. Bye, you guys. Bye. -bye.